Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Hello, hello. I have the gift for you. I am so excited to share with you today's show. It's an interview. It's been a while since I've been in the interview saddle, but I felt so compelled to learn about my guest's story and then share her story with you. And she's going to come back because we just had such a great time together and I had so much fun going back into the interview seats. So Tembi Locke is here today and we're going to talk about her book called A Memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home. And the book's title is From Scratch. This, my friend, would be a fantastic summer read for you. Go read it, enjoy it. And I've always talked about the windows of possibilities. And she brings us through this vulnerable story of her life and shares it with us. And the insights that you can gather are going to be different than what I gathered and what she may have discussed, but go and read it. It is a beautiful story about her journey, falling in love, losing her husband to cancer and moving through grief and building her life. Tembi and I are going to be talking about her courage to love her ability to provide forgiveness and the obstacles that she and her husband faced along with how did she move through grief? I'm so excited to introduce you to Tembi Locke. Thank you so much for listening. I will circle back with you after the interview. Tembi, hello and welcome to my show. Oh, Corinne, thank you so much for having me. It is like an honor to be here. Not like it. It actually is an honor. <laughs> it's an honor to have you here. And I was so thrilled. Like, I don't do that many interviews. I really don't do interviews anymore. And I came across your book. I have no idea where. And I just was drawn. I wanted to learn about your story and then to be able to bring you and share your story with my audience. Because one of the things since back in the day when I started the show in 2006 was this idea that there's windows of possibilities. And we will fall down. It's not a matter of if we will fall down. And then how do we get back up? And I think your story, unfortunately, is such an example for how somebody goes through the tremendous difficulties and rebuilds their life. So thank you so much for being willing. Oh, I have to say, it's my pleasure. I love the work that you are doing in the world. And for me, you know, this is sort of my sweet spot. I really love talking about one. I I mean, look, I come to this as an actor, so I love process, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I love thinking about the ways that we're all, you know, vulnerably and brilliantly human in all circumstances, right? So this is, I'm excited to talk today. Thank you. Awesome. So you have this beautiful book from scratch, which you guys, I highly recommend going into the summer. It's a memoir <laughs> of love and Sicily and finding home. And I'm so excited because I'm heading off to Italy next week for the first time. Um, oh, oh. Yes, I'm so I'm very excited. <laughs> and, but to this idea of like, so often people are afraid to love. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your experience because wasn't that your case early on with 
who became Lutado. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So very much afraid to love was kind of my middle name. Um, you know, but I was also young at the time. So Sato and I met when I was 20 years old, my parents were divorced. My mother had remarried and was going through a divorce and I was 20 and I went to study abroad in Italy and I had had, you know, the ways in which young people have sort of young middling, relationships, you're trying to sort of figure out what do you like in another person? You know, how do you want to be in a relationship? So it all seemed very confusing and big. And, you know, I had the kind of like erotic piece down, <laughs> you know, that sort of piece of it. Like I had that down. I thought, okay, maybe that's all this whole thing is about. And, you know, very quickly when I met Sado, I realized, oh, no, there's a whole nother way of loving and being in the world and being with another human. And it opened up my world in a whole new way. And I didn't I didn't actually initially know that it was possible that he you know, what he was sort of offering the kind of love and life and possibility that he was offering was a real thing. But he very quickly and I write about this in the book, you know, inducted me into that heart space, that deep grounded heart space. And I just thought I would be silly and a fool and I might miss something if I don't at least try. But it wasn't just an instantaneous thing. Like how long did it take you to have the courage to Mm. try? You know, um, yeah, no, it wasn't instantaneous. It wasn't like we met and the next day I'm like, Hey, let's do the now. It really unfolded over a number of months while I was there. So I went to study for a semester abroad. And, you know, I think we met somewhere at the very beginning of the semester and it was probably well into, and then I chose to stay longer. I extended my stay and it was about four to five months of him, you know, showing up in a very consistent way and offering his friendship first which, you know, we could talk about that later because I think that's a critical piece in deep loving relationships, um, partnerships. And he offered that and I could see that there was something grand in it, but I was sort of, um, <laughs> you know, to sort of put it politely, blinded by all the other things that Italy offers in the way of, you know, men and food and these gorgeous experiences. So I couldn't quite focus exclusively on Sato just yet. And yet he didn't shy away from that. He just stayed ever present, offering his friendship in this sort of, you know, consistent way. And then I realized, oh no, this, there's something real here and I need to explore it. And I finally accepted an invitation to have dinner at his restaurant. And that became the beginning of the turning point for me. So I love this in so many aspects because one, we're talking about the courage to love and then mm-hmm. Tembi, there's a part of you that's already courageous, right? Like you're going to study abroad. Yeah. I didn't know that about myself. You know, I mean, I, I didn't, or, or maybe perhaps what I thought was, oh, I can be brave over here in this lane. I didn't know that generally in that, which I know now in life is that where we are present and open-hearted in one space, we have the capacity to apply that to many areas of our lives. It will tend to infuse many aspects of it. But at the time, I didn't know that. I simply thought, oh, yeah, I'm brave. I came to Italy, but I'm going home. And that's kind of that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or I can be brave with my academics, or I can be brave in my career choice. But the idea of love, you know, which I think the risk there felt much greater. So I, I, I didn't see myself as brave. And yet, I kind of was. You you really were. (laughs) One of the things I like to talk about is you already had that muscle of bravery, right? For going over and going abroad Mm -hmm. and and being different. 
right? Yeah. And I do think you're right about that. And that, that sense of, um, I am actually reflecting as we speak about the ways in which bravery I know was all around me in many ways. And so I had it both in my parents and my grandparents, but also even in my choice, I knew I wanted a career in the arts, which requires Mm -hmm. a kind of bravery as well, right? A stepping into the unknown. So the elements were there. I wasn't consciously aware of it. I just was taken by someone who said, I see potential here for an us, and please come with me on this journey. But how realistic is that? When you're there studying abroad, (laughs) he lives in a different part of the world than you do. (laughs) Yeah, that I there's the rub, as they say, right? Um, and I think it was my parents would have concerned that sense of I mean, listen, Sadr was 12 years older than I was. We come from different cultures, different languages, different races, different generations, every the economics that all of it was different. There was the the things on the surface that would tend to indicate that we are aligned, we're all in different columns. However, that where we were aligned, which is, I think, the essence of what makes relationships works, is we were really aligned in our um, understanding of what we really value deep inside our souls. And that was the primary alignment that could carry us through all the differences. Because the differences actually become an opportunity for ways to really learn and be curious about something that is completely other than what you know. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about, I mean, I was just learning Italian. I didn't, my, my, nobody in my family was a great cook. You know, we didn't sort of use food as a love. I mean, we did use food as a love language in a different way, but not, not, you know, I, I didn't, no one in my family was a chef. No one in my family, you know, um, you know had been, you know, were artists or, or, you know, I had farmers at few generations back. But Sosado was was very um there was there was a wonder about the ways in which I was very curious about all these different parts of him that to me were very fascinating, but were very different for me. So with these differences, again, you it wasn't something that you learned in the very no. beginning, right? He was just steadfast. Like he knew what he wanted. And it was like, we don't need to think logically about this. It sounded like he really led with his heart of what he wanted and what he was committed to. Mm -hmm. Even as you may have, I think there were some other hookups or other interests that you had that you would straight to (laughs) tell me where I'm wrong. (laughs) No, you're totally right. You're totally right. I mean, look, you know, I... I wish, uh, you know, and a part of writing the book was sort of really trying to unpack and understand my 20 year old self. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, I felt very proficient in my, 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 you know, or very rooted in my identity as a good student, as someone who was creative and artistic, um, as someone who, you know, in some ways would take risk, but within certain spaces, Mm -hmm. But I also could be incredibly logical, (laughs) you know, incredibly like, here's my task, here's my list, let's check off the boxes, you know. And so in a lot of ways, when Sado came into my life, while I was having, you know, sort of other very unsatisfactory, you know, random relationships, you know, I write about, you know, a hookup here and there. And I kind of 
you know, I think I was bumbling through all of that, those sort of very unsatisfactory experiences, right? Which, you know, on the, on the one hand, they were, right? I don't need to, <laughs> you know, parse that out too much. You know, on the one hand, they were satisfactory, but on a, on a sensory level, but emotionally, in my soul, they were not satisfactory. And I could, I had this awareness that, oh my gosh, life could be going from just one of these to the next, you know, over and over and over again. And that was kind of frightening. And then here was Sato, who was saying, here's another way of moving through the world, which can include all of the, the, the beautiful sensory and aesthetic beauty, but also anchored in something much, 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 much deeper. And he really did lead from his heart. And I was kind of, it, it kind of fascinated me. I was like, can people even do that? You know, like, is that, po-? and yet he was like, yeah, and here's how. So um, I really think Sato, in a lot of ways, I can understand now that what he was really doing was sort of showing me and teaching me another way of being. And some of that, I mean, he was not consciously aware of. I mean, he wasn't, you know, like, hello, let me teach you how to, you know, you know he was being who he was. Right. And he was effectively being so incredibly authentic that you couldn't help but fall in love with him. Mm. right and so that was like i couldn't there was no logic to sort of impose on that it was just like oh this is it felt as real and as right as the air i was breathing it sounds like he was just so grounded and filled with love i call it being rooted in love Mm -hmm. that you know, your uncertainty, your feeling of vulnerability, right? Maybe I don't even know if you felt like anxious, like, oh, but how would this work? His groundedness got you to shift over to his energy instead of him shifting over to yours. Absolutely. 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 I I have to, I, I credit him and I did when he was alive and I all, you know, I was always saying, you know, it's because of him (laughs) that we had this relationship. It wasn't some like, Oh, I was just wise enough to know, you know, (laughs) he was the one. No, no, no. He really made space for the possibility and then held that space and then showed me what it was like, because I could be a little, you know, like, you know, you could tell it to me that I need to see it, that I need to taste it, that I need to feel you know, it took me a while to really integrate it into as, as a real thing. And I think the thing that the grace in Sato's life and who he was, was he kind of came into the world or maybe he cultivated over, you know, his lifetime of sort of being able to trust grace when it happened. And then he just didn't question it. And that was very seductive, you know, in a lot of what intellectually, spiritually, romantically, because I'd never really been around someone who trusted that much. Now he would say he was all, you know, he had his insecurities and all this. I'm not trying to sort of paint him as some, you know, you know, love guru, you know, over there. he, you know, he was like all of us with, you know, the ways in which he struggled and, and, and was, you know, sort of seeking to be better. But in this one area, he just kind of trusted himself. And that allowed for an us to be. It reminds me, Tembi, of um, when you go on and talk about, you know, the summers in Sicily and when your parents were coming for your birthday, your 44th birthday, (laughs) and the fact that they eat at home. You know, the Sicilians eat at home. This is what we do. We don't go out to eat. We don't do this. This is what we do. So I call it brain juice. There's like no decision fatigue. There's no brain juice wasted. (laughs) Right. Oh my gosh. I need to borrow that. I love it. 
and, and that sounds like, so again, like you had the courage to go abroad in this container, which is accept, it's socially acceptable when you're a university student, right? This is yes. what we do. Yes. And so we may not realize the bravery in that, but it is brave. I mean, you're an African-American woman going to Italy by yourself yes. with a certain yes. amount of money that you then yes. blow, right? Yep, exactly. No, I, I can see now I was playing in a high risk space. I mean, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Insofar as not risk in terms of potential danger, but just risking things, you mm-hmm. know, risking the idea that, oh, I could fall flat, flat on my face. I mean, it was also the issue of, oh, I actually still have to graduate on time. You know, I was not, you know, from a family that could just like easily make this happen for me. Right. So the stakes of both really showing up academically, graduating on time, and I had to do it with a certain GPA to maintain my scholarships. And yet here I am in another country learning another language. Oh, and by the way, I'm having relationships, which, oh, that doesn't make sense. You know, and, and, oh, let me go travel, try to travel when I can on the weekends. I mean, I was juggling a lot of plates. And then of course it all falls flat because I ran out of money and I had to start working. So then I was working in another country under the table and had to sort of figure that out. So I I think I, one of the big gifts for me at this stage in my life of writing the book is having to go back and look at that 20 year old person who really was doing those things. It's helped me to really honor her. Right. And I think a part of writing the book, and I don't want to jump around too much, but a part of my grief journey was sort of, um, really like, you know, sort of what they call, you know, like a soul recapture, like capturing parts of my essence. Right. How did this all happen in my life? And I had to go back to that inception, right. That 20 year old who was walking down the street in Florence and bumped into a man and her life got changed. How did that actually happen? And what was at play in my heart? And what was I really seeking deep down inside that I was willing to step into that space? And Sada was a big, huge, obviously, part of that. But I can also see that there was some part of me that the longing for the very thing that he was offering was so great that I knew to not grab onto it or at least try what I would have suffered another kind of loss. So what was it that you were seeking deep down inside? I think I was seeking a kind of connection and a kind of understanding of what love could be and also a willingness to be brave, like the courage to be brave in love and in life. And when someone that you have fallen in love with, who's older than you from another race, another culture, another language, you're sitting in a cafe, you know, thousands of miles from your home of origin, and they say, we can make this work somehow, some way. The possibility of that, the excitement of that felt like so heart opening that to not do it, I felt like, oh, I'll regret this the rest of my life if I don't at least try. And, you know, um, I think what I was really seeking was a kind of that, that deep bravery, right. And Sato kind of ignited that both in the love space and in the possibility for perhaps the life we could create together. He's a chef. I'm seeking to be an actress, you know, Mm -hmm. although those are not easy uh, ways to begin your life. Right. And also the, with the knowledge that he's going to have to sort of pack up his life in Italy and eventually come to the States and we just have to make it work. And, you know, we did, we did. So the two of you had so many obstacles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just what you had mentioned. And then the other part is the blending of two cultures and his family not being accepting of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it what was interesting about that time in our lives and about 
those beginning obstacles were the fact that one, you know, I have to say that Sato's sort of, if you will, estrangement fracture with his family, really a big part of it predated me. Right. It, it was the fact mm-hmm. that he, in his own way, had broken away from his family. He had chosen a different life for himself. He'd come to Florence. He broke with a long centuries long line of the tradition of being a farmer, living in your town, you know, marrying in your town. And he struck out to do something different. He'd gone to Florence to study translation. He found his way into chefing. Um, he loved poetry. So he was, he was already kind of an outlier and the ways in which his family didn't understand that and felt their own disappointment that somehow they had done something wrong by not raising a son who wanted to do what everybody else did. Right. Mm-hmm. So that by the time we met and i we fell in love and, you know, it was very clear we were going to build a life together. I was sort of icing on a cake that was already baked. Mm. Right. Uh, right. So that, that cake of fracture between father, son, between the cultural rifts, the generation that was already there. What I added to that in a very dramatic way was the fact that I'm American, you know, and for them, Sicilians and particularly of that of his parents' generation at that time, they thought, oh, my God, all Americans, they divorce. You know, why why would you marry an American? <laughs> like, what the heck? You know, and, and by the way, I had divorced parents. Mm-hmm. I'm black. No framework of understanding what that even could be. Right. No, you know, all the ways in which that is foreign to them. And then I want to be an actress. Mm-hmm. I mean, for them, acting was like I was working in the circus. You know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, there are those, you know, I mean, listen, there, there's a lot of history around the fact that actors for a longest time in, you know, in the imaginations of people were like a rung above, you know, shall I say, you know, being a prostitute, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. actors are like, you know, not have not always been and in many places in the world, not looked upon in the highest regard, you know? So for them all, when I, when you put all of that together, it was too much for them. They simply, it was easier for them to create distance with their son, to say no categorically to everything he had chosen to be and desired to be in the world than to try to accept, understand, and be close to him. And some of that was cultural for them. You know, um, I think there are many movies about, you know, the Sicilian family and I don't need to go on, you know, about that. But I think some of it was cultural and some of it was they were really they didn't know how to be with each other. And so I further complicated the situation. And so we definitely had that as an obstacle. And as, as young married people or people intending to get married, because then as I write about in the book, they didn't come to our wedding and we got married in Italy. That was incredibly painful way to begin a life together to sort of in creating one family to have to forsake another, to be rejected categorically right? And to navigate the ways in which my family as progressive black American people who are, you know, big cityed and, you know, have, you know, highly educated for them to sort of make heart space for what their future son-in-law was going through, right? To be coming to a wedding in Italy and knowing that the other half of the family isn't even there. So we all were asked to sort of step into our most uncomfortable spaces to try to let this love and the potential of this marriage sort of take flight. So oftentimes when people get into these uncomfortable spaces, right, especially when it's this area around belonging, right, not being accepted, and even though you're the icing on the cake, it can so easily be interpreted to be personal. Yeah. 
And oftentimes then what happens is people then have doubt, oh, maybe this isn't right. Or they use that this is a sign, this is not the right marriage. I see. Did any doubt ever get triggered in you with these obstacles, with these uncomfortablenesses that of building this life with him? I know, which is so interesting. No, I, it, you know, I, we really felt like, and, and some of that is sad. Oh, he said, Tembi, I'm marrying you. I want you. And the obstacle for us was me. How did I, as his partner, as his wife, help him to navigate that pain? Right. Mm-hmm. Because he was, he was experiencing a deep grief inside that I don't think he could articulate at the time. And I was also, you know, sort of on the surface of it heard and I had my indignations and I was a little, you know, I could get righteous about it all. Like what the hell, you know, why won't these people, you know, because I also didn't know them. I didn't have a, a perhaps a nuanced understanding of them. I just was like, why are these people being this way, you know, to a degree? And it was painful, right? And it was painful to watch the pain play out. And I, and it was also like, gosh, you know, is, is, you know, the ways in which race was overlaid with that, right? And, and the ways in which it's, it, the wounds of that all get stirred up. But I also had the understanding that wait a minute, hold on. They've actually never met me. So this actually is not personal, Mm. right? They don't like the idea of it much like they don't like the idea of lots of other things. And and to some degree, I don't like the idea of the way they're being right now. So we're all kind of in a, a stalemate, right? We were all stuck. And yet I never doubted that Sato and I would not find our way. And perhaps the fact that we had a geographical distance, right? His parents were in another country. They spoke a different language. I mean, that kind of in, you know, just sort of on the surface, the given circumstances created a kind of separation already. But I knew that ultimately for Sado and I to really be deeply in a long-term successful and healthy marriage, we had to address this riff. Because if we didn't, it would create a silent space in our marriage, a kind of untouchable that I wasn't willing to have. So that became for me more than for him, a driving reason to sort of go to Sicily and forge or try to be, you know, what I call like an ambassador of reconciliation. You know, I try, I was like, I will be that person in this, you know, story. (laughs) I will try, you know, and some of that I came to naturally because I'm, you know, African-American in America, having, you know, watched the ways in which my parents, you know, moved and grandparents through the Jim Crow South, that understanding of sometimes we do have to be ambassadors to sort of a higher way of thinking, Mm -hmm. but I never expected I'd have to do that inside my own marriage. And yet I did. And yet I had to, because to not do it, I couldn't see the pain on Sato's face any longer. So it sounds like you used, again, you tapped into that bravery muscle that you have, right? Mm. And then this ability to work through forgiveness Mm. of his family, right? Of being more compassionate, of understanding that maybe they just don't understand and I don't understand them. And how do we go? And the goal is to bring in this connection and bring us together instead mm-hmm. of being divided. Yeah, I definitely desired that. And I think some of that, you know, it's funny as I'm, as we're discussing, you're helping me to sort of see even another layer in that, which is that I think to some degree, a part of my early wounds, even as a child of divorced parents was about seeking 
a, a tight family unit, right? When you have your parents divorce and that separates, I think that there's a wound there that you carry as a child. And I think to some degree as an adult woman who was then married, seeing that fracture with Sato was, it, it, it stirred up something that was kind of, I, I couldn't, I couldn't live with it. You know, it felt off for me. And so I wanted that reconciliation very deeply, I think on a, on an even deeper level, which I'm only, you know, kind of, it's coming to me now as we have this discussion. Um, but I definitely wanted to flex that, this idea of reconciliation and forgiveness. I mean, that's a big thing in my family, um, personally for many reasons. And, you know, I remember my grandmother talking about stories of, of forgiveness that she had to do, you know, in her family, in a society, my family has always had to do a lot of forgiving, you know, for many different injustices and wrongs. Right. And the forgiving sometimes can just be making peace with it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that I went to Sicily or that first trip was about necessarily forgiving them. I don't think I was there mentally. Mm -hmm. I think I was more about let's create a space for some type of peace right? Let's just make a, like a reconciliation. The forgiveness can come later. It's sort of like in South Africa when they did the truth and reconciliation mm -hmm. committee after apartheid, you know, they, at first you have to just claim what happened. You have to say, mm -hmm. you have to sort of dismantle it and then you can begin to do the healing later. So I don't think I was thinking about the healing part. I was thinking about, we need to at least start the process of create a bridge to them. And I knew that if we gave it our best shot and we really tried, maybe, maybe, there could be something later and down the line. And of course that, that did happen. That, that, that first trip that when we go and, um, you know, we meet Sato's family or I meet Sato's family for the first time and he sees them for the first time in many years, it did become an opening. Mm -hmm. And I kind of thought it might be a one-off. I didn't know, you know, cause life is full of surprises. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that it would become a catalyst for something much, much, much bigger. And, Here's why I appreciate your story so much, right? The love of your life, right? This man who you love so much. It wasn't you went to Italy and you met him and you were head over heels, right? It's not the Hollywood movie. Mm -mm. And then this process of reconciliation that it wasn't like, okay, we're going to forgive. It was maybe we can build a bridge and we don't even know where this is going to lead. But you knew the pain of your husband's face was too great. So you're willing to once again be brave. Mm -hmm. And you have a line in your book and you say, I'd have to try to illustrate how life required constantly repairing and rebuilding relationships. Yeah. And that is the kind of, um, look, when we choose to have someone, people in our lives, we are all at different times moving through so many different, um, life changes, different understandings of ourselves, of each other. There are ups and downs. I mean, look, mm -hmm. I have in, in my, <laughs> I have a hard time sitting and being present, fully present and compassionate with myself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> with myself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so to extend that out to other people, person or persons becomes work, and it is the work of relationships. It is the work of our life, right? Because if you're choosing to have someone in your life and really be in your life, and one of the things I do know about myself is I like to be present for things. So if we're in each other's lives, then let's really be in each other's lives, mm. right? Let's really do it. <laughs> and that can look many different ways over many different decades and different incarnations of the life we're trying to build and make and live 
you know, live through. And so the constant repairing, checking in, um, unpacking, you know, and in a way you have to be in contract to do that with the other person that doesn't happen spontaneously. And it's certainly not a one way street because it's a reciprocal agreement, whether you consciously state it or not, the fact that you're constantly checking in with each other at checking in, how are you doing? How are you doing? You know, sort of trying to understand what the other person is going through is a constant process. And I've had to practice that in my family of origin, in my chosen family, that Asado's family. I we do it in parenthood every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do it with our partners every day. You know, you do it with close friends to a degree. You know, you 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 do it with parents. I mean, I can't think of a place and a relationship where we're not doing that work if we're invested in the relationship. And I was invested in, at the very least, the idea of Sato having a better relationship with his parents. I didn't know if it could be an intimate one. I didn't know if it could be a joyous one. I hoped it might be, but I certainly knew that there was something more than what they had. And if it took, you know, me as his partner saying, I think we need to do this. And then he was like, no, 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 no. I mean, because he had decided, no, 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 no. He was willing to put that relationship in a box and keep it moving, you know, but I also knew that he longed for it. Right. And sometimes it's the people closest to us to see our deeper longings in a way that we can't. And sometimes we need them to induct us into a willingness, just as he had inducted me when we first met. I kind of felt it was my time to induct him in. Let's just try it. And that was a really seminal moment for all of us as a family. And and the book very much traces what started as a love between two people Mm. over the course of many decades or a couple of decades becomes a love that touches families. And that by the end of the book, of course, there's my daughter at the epicenter of these two families who at one point were very estranged, didn't know each other. And yet, you know, for her, is that the message we want for her in the world? Mm-hmm. Right? Really? Is that what we want for the next generation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm, I don't think so. You know, so I didn't, I, I, I sort of, had that felt sense when I had the desire to write the book, but as I was writing it, I, and and you know, for those who have read it or who will read it, you know, the, the journey where I arrived at the end of writing the book was an, a newer awareness of what really the depth of what we had all as in our own way tried to do, not knowing that we were trying, it. <laughs> you know, we were just sort of making decisions from a heart place through difficulty, through incredible obstacles and I actually thought that the ops, the biggest obstacle in my marriage with Sato would be the thing around his family. And of course, that proved not to be the deepest obstacle. The deepest obstacle was yet to come. The deepest obstacle was his diagnosis. Well, and before we go into that, like looking at building this bridge and how important it was to build that then for what was to come. Yeah, gosh. And we and thank you for saying that because, you know, in hindsight, I can see that now, but we, I didn't know it at the time, mm-hmm. right? At the time it was like, let's just, let's just, you know, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's build this bridge. But when his diagnosis happened, the fact that we had done that repair work earlier, right, really gave us some foundation, perhaps still tenuous, but it gave us a foundation. It gave us a place 
to now have to navigate this other new terrain, right? And all the emotions that go with that. And his family got the benefit of reconnecting with their son, not solely mm-hmm. because he had just been diagnosed, but because they'd already done that. Yes. I can only imagine the pain and the kind of loss and grief and 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 you know regret that they would have carried had that work not been done beforehand because none of us knew that a diagnosis was coming. So let's talk about the grief and the, the your ability to move through the grief, the grief of the diagnosis, the grief of his passing, the grief of I have a seven-year-old daughter mm-hmm. and how do we get through this? Well, I, I, I spent a book trying to talk about that, you know, to a degree, Corinne, because it's, it's so much. I mean, one of the things that I, uh, I was aware, I mean, almost immediately when he was diagnosed, immediately I felt grief. I didn't articulate it with that word right away, but there was the grief of the life I thought I was going to have and the life that now life was presenting to me. So there was a kind of a, 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 a suffering, if you will, between, and, you know, there are people, you know, spiritual masters who talk about, you know, suffering is that sort of gap between what is and what you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's where a lot of our suffering, you know, at least our emotional suffering, I believe physical suffering is a different thing altogether, but our emotional suffering can sit in that space. And, and, and I would call that sometimes for me, it was a grief initially of, oh, the marriage we thought we had, the life we thought we were building life is giving us something um, new here and not something that we're choosing. Right. So, and then there was watching the physical grief of his body changing Mm -hmm. through chemotherapy. There was the grief of not being able to start a family perhaps Mm -hmm. because the chemotherapy changed his, 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 his sperm count and, you know, the ability to conceive was, was a jeopardy. So there was a lot of grief packed into just being diagnosed. And then the years of treatment, I mean, he was, you know, I was a, a caregiver for 10 years. Um, and we, we, we navigated critical illness over that time. And I had a lot of grief and even anticipatory grief, which is another concept that I didn't know at the time, but I learned about, um, later, which is that sort of awareness that death is coming. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, you're kind of trying it on. You're trying on emotionally, like what that would might feel like, but you can never really try it on. Um, and because it is so utterly devastating when it happens. And so I have experienced many, 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 I think there was a long grieving process from diagnosis through illness. And then of course, at the time of his death, then there was yet another whole way of grieving that hit immediately and took me years, years to integrate, to, to navigate. I mean, there's that first piece, right? Those first, you know, for me, I call it the feral stage of grief, which for me was not months. It was you know, well through the first year into the second year. And, you know, there are many great books and, 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 and I, you know, I, I, am not a grief expert by any stretch, but I do try to share as much as, as honestly and as openly and authentically as I can of what that looked like in my life. Um, and for my daughter, because as a parent, I was not only grieving the loss of my husband, but I was also trying to navigate and hold up a grieving child, right? And to allow and make space for her grief. And so we were two grieving people in the same home, you know, but grieving different relationships. 
and the ways in which that can could sometimes look the same and the ways in which that could be radically different at times. And yet as mom, you know, um, I often say that, you know, some of the ways in which I really pulled myself forward, and I borrow that term from a Sicilian phrase, to tirarsi avanti, which means to sort of pull yourself forward. The way I pulled myself forward often was because of my daughter. Mm. Needing to show up for her, even if I wasn't convinced I could show up for myself. And in some ways, my motherhood became a grace in my grief. Is that what allowed you? Because let's go back to after he passes, you're mm-hmm. an actress. You've just mm-hmm. missed getting on new shows. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because yeah, yeah. you made that conscious decision of I need to be with him and I'm not mm-hmm. going to go put myself out there. So when we just even talk about for so many people, the instability of work being an actress. Oh, and, Jesus. That's its own grief. <laughs> right? and, and you have these medical bills that have come in. There's not steady work right now. And you have a daughter with private school in in, in L.A. And you go to Sicily this summer. Mm -hmm. And you think about so often of how when people are in grief sometimes or when they get they get into this place of fear of the unknown Mm -hmm. and they may ratchet it up and not allow themselves that space Mm -hmm. to grieve like you gave yourself and your daughter to go back to his home place and have that space, not really knowing what was going to, how it was going to work out. And if you were going to get along with his mother, you know, to really be connected, because you were still tell me, you can correct me where I'm wrong, but I believe mm-hmm. at that point you were still an outsider. I mean, you were his wife, mm-hmm. but there's in part of their culture, there seems to be a very, you know, a line between outsiders and insiders. It's their own self-protectionism, right? It's their mm-hmm. own armor. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, was it because of your daughter that allowed you to, again, not go into this panic mode and say, no, I must work here because who knows when I'll get work and I've got all this uncertainty? Ah, uh, well, I, you know, wow, thank you for bringing, bringing that actually forward because I think there's a couple of things inside, inside this conversation. One is the, um, the, the acting piece. So my work really is about my instrument my tool is my instrument, my body, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. how my emotional life is my tool as an actor. Right. And it was very clear to me in my deep, deep state of grief that I was not present and I could not be present in my work. I just couldn't not in a deep way and not in a consistent way. And that kind of scared me because I'd always been able to sort of access that, but I had a big event happen in my life and it was really hard to, read a script, unpack it, uh, you know, imagine myself as someone else to really transport myself into a character because I was so lost in my own deep emotional life that I was in. Right. So I had, I knew that there was some work I might be able to do, but there was some work I couldn't do. And I felt if I couldn't reconcile or couldn't find a way to kind of escort myself back into my heart and in my body as much as I could, I didn't know what kind of work I was actually going to get as an actress, you know, quite frankly. And so on the one hand, there was a bravery in it insofar as, yes, I knew I had to just trust, okay, Tenby, there will be more work. Even if you take this break, there will be more to come. You have to trust that. And I have had a career, I've had ups and downs in my career. And in fact, you know, over the times of, during the time of Sato's illness, there were times when I worked more and there were times when I worked less. And so as an actor, one of the things I think, you know, kind of helped me there was that sense of, you got to trust that your part is coming. The part that is meant for you is going to come. So if you need to take a break now to 
help refuel and ground yourself, then please do. So some of that decision, what I had the fear, but I just had to rise above the fear and take the leap. The other piece was, yes, my daughter. I also knew that for her, she needed to be and she needed to see us staying connected to her family and to her dad's family in a way that I couldn't give her here in LA. And I knew that there might be something beautiful for her. I didn't know what it would look like by being with her grandmother and the kind of love, because there's nothing like a Sicilian mother, a grandmother, right? <laughs> and the kind of love that they will shower on you and the kind of way in which she could bring, you know, a kind of closeness that we could kind of close ranks together, not in a way that's shutting the world out, but in a way that is kind of circling the wagons of our love and, and even in our loss. And I couldn't do that alone by myself, that there was a whole part of her identity and her family that was sitting thousands of miles away. And it was up to me to get her there to try to create some kind of closeness there. And so, and I also hoped that, you know, basically look, I mean, Sicily is a beautiful healing place in a lot of ways. I mean, at the level of the food and nature, and and there's something about the natural world of like escorting myself and us to a place where time is slowed down, where life is brimming, right? With literally the heart summer harvest, that there's something like at the very primal earth level could be potentially quite healing for us at a critical time. So it was all those reasons that I needed to sort of anchor myself as an actress a little bit more, that I wanted something for my daughter. And the fact that I knew Sicily held the promise potentially of a kind of deep sensory and like at the level of like the earth at the most prime, the, you know, literally the, the element, sun, wind, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or the earth beneath us, it could be quite healing. And so for those reasons, I was willing to try. I was willing to get on that plane that maybe in some of all of that, there might be a, something good could come of it. And that became the launching of us getting on the plane. And of course, the other piece was a promise I'd made to Sato about going there. So for all those reasons, we went that first summer. And then of course, what we find and the connection that we found in that first summer became the genesis of returning again and then returning again. So it, it was, yeah, there was bravery in there, but there was also, I guess, maybe kind of what there was a hunger or desire for something deeper again, that I wasn't, I couldn't fully articulate, Mm -hmm. but that I wanted, I mean, maybe if I had to put it down in one word, it would be a kind of a closeness, a closeness to both him, a closeness to family, a closeness to a kind of love that I felt was there. If I could just get there, I hope that, 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 you know, I know I kind of went on a riff there, but I hope that makes sense. It's hard to articulate. That's why I spent, I spent, you know, a book writing it and really trying to sort of you know, articulate what drove me to go there. You know, I had to ask myself that as I was like, what, what prompted me to get above and beyond the promise, right? Because one could say, oh, well, Sada was passed. So you, you know, yeah, you promised that, but did you really have to do it? Mm -hmm. But I really did have to do it for Zoella, for myself and for him. Mm -hmm. Well, and it goes back to like the transformation that you had of being that 20 year old, check the box, right? Very (laughs) logical about things 
you know, that isn't necessarily the logical step in your career and what's yes. Right. But Mm. to go back to this heart and the values and, Mm. and creating that space and, and who you become in this process. And so the thing I think about is, you know, often when we go through life, often we don't go, Oh, this is the path that I want to choose. Right. We want, Mm -hmm. we want the fairy tale that Mm -hmm. the love Mm -hmm. of my life, Mm -hmm. live happily ever after we get to have the careers that we want. Right. That's the dream. And we don't want to have the obstacles. And unfortunately your big obstacle was losing your husband. The loss Mm -hmm. of your husband. My question for you is who did you become Mm -hmm. in this process, in this process of loving sorrow? You know, thank you for asking that, Corinne. The thing that keeps coming to me is this sense, and I get emotional when I think about it or when I feel it actually, not even think. I became a more courageous person in every sense. There's, you know, being a caregiver is one of the most courageous acts anyone can ever, ever, ever do in life. It is honoring, it is deeply, it brings us to the knees of our humanity, right? And you have to be courageous to do it. And, and so I, there's that piece, the courage piece, which I had to sort of refine and hone over a decade of being a mom and being a partner through all of that. But after Sado's passing, I think in some way, as strange as, and counterintuitive as this may sound, losing the great love of my life mm. made me want to reach harder for love for the time that I have left. Being with him at the moment of his passing and having that leave me physically set me on a path and I didn't know it. I couldn't. There's no way I could have known it. But I can see it now, seven years later, to find a way to integrate that love into every facet of my life going forward for the time that I have left. Because in facing death, one of the things I know to be true, perhaps one of the only things I know to be true, is that our time here is very finite. And what do we want to do? What do I want to do with the time I have left? Right. And part of that was being with Sado through the final days and having him say something really pivotal to me, which was he said to me, Tenby, I want you to have your life. And at the time, I think I, I, I think I thought of it as like he wanted me to not have to be a caregiver anymore. He wanted me to have, you know, a career. You know, I, I don't think I understood the depths of what he was saying, which was really what he was saying is I want you to go be full because we had suffered so much loss and he was leaving this earth and leaving our relationship and our marriage because he asked me, he said, where am I going? And I said, I don't know, but I feel like it will be a beautiful place. And I thank you for being brave enough to go first because I know you'll be waiting for me. Hmm. And I think what he was saying to me is you're going to remain here in this 3d mm-hmm. <laughs> analog world, right? <laughs> that we are sharing right now. And I hope that it's full for you. So on the other side of his death and many years of grieving and therapy and spiritual work and healing work and a lot of trauma work and all the kinds of things that we could talk about for another, you know, time. You're coming back. (laughs) I'm coming back, baby. I love it. Through all of that, because I didn't do this by myself and I don't ever want to 
there's no absolute way this could have ever been done. But I've come to the awareness that I think the person I've become is someone who is brave enough because I have stood and sat at the bedside of the person I love so deeply as he was leaving this earth. It ignited a kind of courage and love in me to do something meaningful with the time I have left. And that's the person I've become through our love and through his loss. I could have never imagined that. I mean, no one, we don't imagine those things for ourselves. I was just happy to be married to a beautiful chef who made great meals and have a beautiful daughter. And, you know, I thought that was going to be the promise of my life and maybe have a great, you know, artistic career. But life has asked something much deeper for me. And I guess I've have the bravery to answer the call. Are you stronger than you ever thought you realized? Yep. And I'm still scared every day. (laughs) No, when this book is coming out, I'm terrified, like terrified, mostly because it's so incredibly vulnerable. And as my sister, who's a writer has said, Tembi, you're letting people into the deepest parts of your psyche. You're letting people into your soul. And the ways in which the sharing, the reliving so that I could share taught me that I'm brave. Mm -hmm. But also now that each day I wake up and I know that I've, put something out into the world to share one, because I felt so deeply moved to share it, but now the ways in which I'm seeing that it's inside of this one story is everybody's story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have people near and dear to me who are caretaking for me now because this isn't easy. You know, it's not easy to be so to the bone Mm-hmm. open and honest and in, in this way. Right. And yet I can't imagine myself doing it any other way. <laughs> I just, I can't, I just can't. I don't, I think that that is really I, what I've been brought here to do. And I don't mean exclusively just this book. I mean, it's a way of being in the world and it might be another book. It might be other sort of, you know, professional or artistic endeavors, but it really, at the end, it's about how I am in my life with the people I love and care about. But we need to know what happened. <laughs> I'm like, like, what happens next? Yes. I'm like, <laughs> I'm still figuring out. I'm writing. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm literally writing my, I'm, I'm, I'm writing about that. I mean, you know, one of the things about what happens next is some of it is, you know, this beautiful new career turn I've had as a writer. Like, I never saw that coming. Right. I mean, I think I kind of desired it deep down, but I don't think I, you know, was giving myself permission. And so some of the bravery was just even being brave enough to say, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to try, I'm going to try to put all this down in 300 pages. Right. And in some way, the, to the best of my ability, that kind of bravery. But so there's some professional changes and then personally keeping my heart open, right? Mm-hmm. And watching Zoella grow and allowing for love in my life in all of its forms, right? Because that's also what Sato said and wanted for me. And thank God he said that to me. Thank God. Thank God. And so did his mother. Yeah, I know. I know. Which is not an easy thing to say. No. Not an easy thing to say, but I think when we love people as he loved me, as she loves me, as I love her, we want just what is best for them. And that includes opening your heart to perhaps new love. Well, and what I recall from the story you shared in the book about that conversation was she was giving you permission, like you loving another doesn't mean you didn't love him. He will always be a part of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And that is some brave speak coming from a Sicilian mother-in-law. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, who's, especially who's her only son. Her only son. And then how, you know, I didn't know about their culture the way that you had described, right? And how they're so protective of each other and so loyal to each other. So for her mm-hmm. to say that, right? Mm-hmm. And the relationship that you guys had cultivated over time. So Tembi, I really thank you because yes, your story does matter. I thank you for sharing it and for being brave and vulnerable and, you know, opening up, you know, areas that, that are inside of you and things that you did that maybe, you know, aligned with the choices that you want to make. And even there's that one comment when your husband is sick and your friend just, you know, says, you know, uh, you have to choose this. And I mean, really choose it, right. Mm -hmm. Where you have to choose to be all in and be a caretaker and, we all struggle with the difficulties and the obstacles in our lives. So I just appreciate you sharing your story. Your words do matter. And one thing, if I can, as we wrap up this interview is give you very wise words from Brene Brown. If people aren't in the arena with you, their opinion doesn't matter. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Brene Brown. Yes, that is, I'm going to carry that. Yeah, because I am, I, I, I realize as I, you know, I've written a book about loss and love and grief and illness and end of life and motherhood and identity and race and culture and all of these things, right? And different people find different pieces of the story they like. But for me, it's all one story. Yes. And this is your story. And this is mm-hmm. your truth. And, and thank you for creating a window for us to see that and walk through it with you. And then another, a friend of mine, and she's been a guest on my show, Betsy Rappenport, and she's been a longtime editor and uh, she's worked with Martha Beck on a lot of her memoirs. But one of the things that she tells writers, because they say, oh, well, I don't know if this will make a difference and I don't know if this will matter. And her, mm-hmm. her comment is always, how many people's lives need to change for make it worth it for you to go through the grueling task of writing? And then her answer is, what if it's one? And what if it's your life? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do my prayer for the book. And this is where I do think Sato is still with us and his, you know, that his love extends far beyond me, but can ignite the fire in so many other hearts for whatever that looks like in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredible. And so to have written the book that might do that in the world, well, that's pretty friggin' remarkable, (laughs) you know, and it can be two people. It can be one person. And even for our daughter, Mm -hmm. she will have this story of her dad told through my lens. You know, Mm -hmm. other people might tell a different story of him, but this is the story I told of the life we had and that that be something that perhaps will ignite her life sometime down the line when she needs it most. Yes. So what a great gift to yourself, to her, and to those of us that you've given us this privilege of going through. And then the people who's, you know, aren't in the arena with you and, you know, they have their own armor up, their opinion just doesn't matter. We're going to have pasta in this arena and make good, delicious food and have wine and, you know, (laughs) be delightful. Thank you so very much, Corinne. This has been just an honor at the, at the deepest of levels. So thank you. Thank you for having this conversation. This has been, I love these kind of conversations to go deep and I do want you back so we can even talk more. Yeah. Let's moving through, right. And how it's not done alone. So thank you. Absolutely. Have a great day. Wow. That was real authentic, 
vulnerable. I'm so grateful that Tembi came here and shared with us her insights, her discoveries in her journey with us. Some of the things that she talked about, I want to just circle back with like her husband's ability to trust grace when it happened. He didn't question it. How often can we do that in our lives? How often do we second guess ourselves and we get into the logical brain instead of really going down inside? And when she was discussing this love story that they had and that what they desired and how they were going to make it work at every phase, right? Before when she was a student and how are they going to make it work? And then later on getting married and then having children and having the careers and going through cancer was this idea, this concept that I've talked about quite a bit here on the show is committing to the best case scenario and managing risk. She talked about that in the show, but they committed to the best case scenario and managed risk. And I invite you to use her story as an example of what that looks like. Cause sometimes we can talk about things that it's like, well, that's a great concept. How does it apply? So I, I thank her for sharing with us so that you have another opportunity to understand how we apply it. And then when she talked about this idea of compassion and, and being able to give that, I think often about you can't give what you don't have. Right. And so when she was in this process of building this relationship with her in-laws who at one point had really shun them, didn't go to their wedding, but learning how to become compassionate, trying to understand what their own resistance may be. And her learning how to become more compassionate, because my friends, we cannot give what we don't have. And so her owning that, like being present and being compassionate is her own practice. And then finally, I just want to say this idea of moving through grief and being able to love again and using that love that you had from a previous relationship to infiltrate all arenas of your life and really realizing when she talked about, you know, time in our lives are very finite. It made me think of my favorite quote from Mary Oliver. What are you going to do with this one precious life? So I leave this show with you to reflect, to embrace, to think about your own life. What can you take? What are your takeaways from today's show with Tembi? Thank you so much for listening. I'm smiling big for you. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.